Good morning. It's great to see everyone here. I know, as Jason mentioned, we have several visitors. We hope you feel welcome here this morning. We're going to do a study this morning on Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, which is a very popular verse. The question I want to pose this morning is that what is what we take it to mean, is what the religious world today uses it and applies it as what it truly means. And I want to look at the context and I want to see exactly who this is talking to and why Jeremiah is writing this letter to them. So this morning we want to talk about that. So when I think of this verse, again, this is a verse that many people love. It's a favorite to many. When reading this verse in isolation and not considering the text that surrounds it, you read it and it seems like an individual promise to us. God is speaking directly to me when this was written. And that's the question I want to ask. You see, in 2020, we had a pretty rough go. I think you guys all kind of remember that, 1920. It was, it was a rough time, and a lot of people gravitated towards this verse and other verses like it. And you can see why when we read it. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's comforting. It makes us feel really good about what's going to happen to us in this world today as, as an individual Christian. It makes me feel really good. I'm a high school teacher, and I teach a lot of seniors, so I get a lot of graduation invitations. And on a ton of these invitations, I see this verse. Not only that, a lot of times I see this verse on pictures with a, a pretty background in people's houses. And you think about that situation as a high school senior. You're about to go out on your own, or even a college senior, you're about to graduate. And you're about to go off on your own. It's about to be a whole new station in life for you. you things are going to change. And you read a verse like this, and it says that God is going to prosper me, that he's going to keep me from harm. He's got a plan for my, my future. He's going to give me hope. But when we look at that, I think too many times we look at that as us, as the individual. He's speaking directly to me. He has a message for me today. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to see exactly what he's talking about. I want to look at the context. And I think when we do that, we're going to find out that this verse means so much more to us than that physical gain, than that worldly prospering that many take this verse to mean. So to do that, I want to start off with a little bit of context this morning, and we're going to go all the way back to Moses. I think it's important to go pretty far back because I think it really helps us understand who Jeremiah is writing this to. You think about Moses. Moses has delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt through God. Moses, or, or the covenant is now renewed, Israel's renewed with God. That covenant is renewed. You see that Moses is, is delivering the law. But we see as soon as Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and comes down, they've already got this golden calf and they're worshiping it. You see that the children of Israel had no patience. They had no patience for God. They had no patience with Moses. It caused them to seek their own ways and do what they thought was right. And we see this, this thing, this happening over and over and over. They would murmur against God. They would murmur against Moses. They would be disobedient to God, doing what they wanted to do. 
And we see that this ended up causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So as they're about to enter the promised land, and I want us to think about what that word says, the promised land, promised by God. They send 12 spies into, into the promised land, into Canaan. Ten come back and say, we can't take the promised land. We can't do it. Two, Joshua and Caleb say, we can do it. And we will do it. But obviously this upset God, and they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's a problem, isn't it? They're wandering in the wilderness, and they don't like it. It's uncomfortable. And we see this same thing happening over and over. We see them murmuring, murmuring against, against God and against Moses. They're complaining about what's happening. God rains manna down from heaven, and it's not good enough for them. These problems, it's just a problem. They're disobedient to God. And it's a cycle that we see with the children of Israel over and over. Now, as this wandering comes to an end, Moses dies and Joshua takes the lead. And Joshua is a great man. As you remember, he was one of the two that said, hey, we can do this. And that's exactly what he does. He delivers them into the promised land. Not only that, through him or through God, they are able to conquer that land and we see as Joshua grows older, he begins to divide that land up between the tribes, the 12 tribes. And as he's coming to the end of his life, he gives two speeches, and he basically reminds him what God has done for him. He's, he tells him that God has delivered them in, he's given them this land, and he reminds them of all of those wonderful things that God has done. And as he is doing this, and as he's giving, this, giving them this speech, he tells them, if you do what God tells you to do, you're going to have life and blessing in this land that he's given you. If you turn your back on God, it's going to lead to exile. And we see that in Joshua chapter 23 and verse 16. He says, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. We see a little bit of foreshadowing here, don't we? A little bit of foreshadowing. So as Joshua passes away, there's really no one left to take the mantle. So we see this period of, of judges. And when we think of judges, these aren't judges like we think of. They're sitting on a, in a courtroom. They're more like a military leader or a tribal chief. And these and when, we, when this starts to happen, we see that God wants Canaanites out of this land, totally. But that's something that Israel fails to do under this leadership. They fail to drive the Canaanites out. And here's what God understood about that. If the Canaanites are allowed to stay, they're going to, their, their lower standards of morality are going to rub off on the Israelites. And Israel will start taking over the practices that these people these religious practices that they follow. And that's a problem. And we see that's exactly what happens. And Israel goes through this cycle of sin. So what happens first is Israel will turn away from God. They will be, God will allow them to be conquered by the Canaanites. They will repent and turn back to God. And then God will raise up this judge to deliver them. And then that cycle starts over and over and over. And we see that cycle going over and over again. And you start out with judges who are pretty good, but all the way down to 
judges that are really bad. Each one gets successively worse. At the end of this, you get to this point where you can't tell Canaan and Israel apart because they live the same way. They're doing the same things. They're worshiping the same gods, and it's not the true God. And eventually, it just turns into chaos. In Judges 21, verse 25, he says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So again, we're seeing this same pattern, turning from God. Not, not following God's word. So once this period is over, you come to a period where Israel needs a wise leader. They need a strong leader. And in the, in the mind of the children of Israel, they want a king. They want to be just like the other nations that are surrounding them. Sounds great to them. This upsets the Samuel prophet, or the prophet Samuel. But God says, I'm going to give you what you want. And that's exactly what happened. So we see that Saul is the first king in this united kingdom. All 12 tribes are together in this kingdom, and they're united under the leadership of Saul. And Saul starts out pretty good, but his character flaws are too much, and he becomes disobedient to God, and this leads to David becoming the king. And David's a, a pretty good king. He seeks after God he wants to do God's will, and yes, he has flaws, and he makes mistakes, and we've had several lessons over the last few months about David and some of the issues that he had, but overall, he sought to do God's will. That's what he wanted to do. And during the time of David, David wanted to establish the spiritual, uh, the, the spiritual, he wanted to establish Je Jerusalem, I'm sorry, I cannot talk this morning. He wanted to establish Jerusalem as the spiritual capital of this united kingdom. And he wants to, to build a temple to God there in Jerusalem. And God says, no, you're not gonna do that. But I will tell you this, your son will do that. Your son will do that for you. And he's speaking of Solomon. But he doesn't stop there. He says that through David, there will be a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem until Jerusalem's gone. And we see that to be about 20 kings. Now, it doesn't stop there. He also provides this promise, and we see that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse 16, and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we have a promise here, a promise that through the lineage of David, an eternal kingdom would be established. And we know that to be the, Jesus Christ. So we see this happen. David passes away. His son Solomon takes over. Kingdom is still united. And Solomon, again, starts out pretty, pretty well. He serves God, but again, character flaws, has issues. Just like Barak talked about Wednesday night, he, he loved foreign women, and he had a lot of wives who pulled him away from God. And we see that, that that not only had effect on Solomon, but it had an effect on Israel as a whole. So what we see next is Solomon does build that temple, but other than that, from then on, he's, he's not doing what God has asked him to do overall. And what we see is when he passes away, we see his son Rehoboam take his place as king. Now, what it says in Kings is that Rehoboam did evil in the sight of the Lord, and this caused a lot of issues, and it actually caused the kingdom to split. 
So what happened is you had Jeroboam, who decides to take over with the northern tribes, the ten tribes, who called themselves Israel, whose capital was in Samaria. And then you had the southern tribes, which was called Judah, whose capital was in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember back to that promise, that lineage of David would take place in Judah, in Jerusalem. So, when you look at the book of Kings, what you see in that book is just a summary of all the different kings, both north and southern kingdoms. And really, there's a criteria on whether they were a good king or a bad king. First of all, did they serve God or did they serve false gods? Secondly, did they rid the kingdom of idolatry? Thirdly, did they keep the covenant with God? Now, if you go look in the book of Kings, you see the northern tribes did not do well. Zero out of 20 kings were bad, like bad. Judah, the southern tribes, didn't do much better. Eight out of 20 were were pretty good. It wasn't a good system, obviously. And over and over, we see these kings described like King Nadab is described in 1 Kings 15 and verse 26, where it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So you had these men who were more worried about themselves, more worried about their pride and what they wanted instead of what God had wanted and what God had asked of them. But at the same time, you had these men, these men who were called prophets in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And we think of prophets and we think of of these men as men who can foresee what's going to happen. And and granted, that does. We have some examples of that. But really, they were there to call out injustice. They were there to call out these kings and say, hey, you're not doing right. They were there to call out Israel and say, hey, you need to change your ways. You need to repent and turn back to God. That was their job. And that's why I can't remember who said it Wednesday night, but they said those prophets were not liked. I think it might have been Barak also. Those prophets were not the favorite most of the time because they were calling out people for doing what those people wanted to do because they weren't serving God. Now, in the northern kingdom, you have two prominent uh, prophets that you see, Elijah with a J and Elisha with an S-H. Now, they're doing the same thing. They're calling out these injustices. They're saying, repent and turn back. But they're just unsuccessful. It's not working. And eventually, that northern kingdom is attacked by Assyria. That northern kingdom is taken over, and those people are exiled. In 2 Kings 18 11, we see the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria. So now what you have left, that northern kingdom is gone, so you have the lower, two, or the, the lower two tribes or the kingdom of Judah that's left. But what we see is there's a, a king by the name of Hezekiah, and he's a pretty good king, and he wants to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. He strives to do that. So when Assyria, the, the kingdom that just came and took over Israel, the northern kingdom, comes knocking on the doors of Jerusalem, guess what happens? They are able to defend Jerusalem and send them out. Assyria was not, they were not able to accomplish their goal like they did with the northern kingdom. But you get the next king, Manasseh, and he's probably the worst one of all. So you see, you have a little bit of good, but then you've got a lot of bad. So Manasseh comes in and he institutes idol worship in the temple. 
He even goes as far as to institute the practice of child sacrifice. It's not okay. It's deplorable. And God has had enough. God has had enough. And this is where Jeremiah comes in. Once Manasseh is is dead, Josiah takes over. And Josiah is a great king, maybe the best king of all of them. And he does what God has asked him to do, and he's trying, but it's just too late. It's just too late. And this is where Jeremiah comes into the picture. Jeremiah lived during the time of Josiah, but he also lived during the time of his sons. And guess what happened with his sons? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. So now Jeremiah is called to bring a message. And we see in Jeremiah 1 and verse 10, he gives this message, or God is telling him what he is going to tell these people. He says, see, I have set you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. Sounds pretty bad, right? But here's the thing. It's not all bad. At the end, he says, to build and to plant. In other words, it's not over for the kingdom of Israel. It's not over. There is still hope. So yes, it's going to get bad, but there's still hope for them. And we see an example of of Jeremiah giving these messages over and over in in the first 24 chapters. So in those first 24 chapters, he's coming and he's warning them. And again, they're just not listening. Now we see a perfect example of this in chapter seven. Now in chapter seven, we see Jeremiah goes to the door of the temple. And as he's at the door of the temple, these people are going into the temple and they're worshiping God. And he calls them out and he says, you go in and you worship God, but then you leave and you go back and you worship these false gods and you do all of these different things. And he calls them out on this laundry list of these sins that they're committing and they're living in. But we see the root of the whole problem in verse 23 of Jeremiah chapter 7, where he says, but this command I give them, obey my voice and I will, or I gave them. So it's past tense. He says, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people, and walk in the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all of my servants, my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet you did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck. They did worse than their fathers." So this message from God is saying, I have given you chance after chance after chance after chance. And each generation has become more evil than the one before it. So we see in about chapter 25, Israel has, or Judah has not turned from their evil ways. And we see that that message that Jeremiah was sending to them, that they are going to be taken over, begins to happen. And Babylon comes in. Babylon army is on their way. They're coming coming to conquer them and to send them into exile for 70 years. And Jeremiah uses this imagery 
of this cup of wine filled to the brim with God's righteous anger. And it's spilling over. And the children of Israel and the nations surrounding it are going to drink of that. You see, God is going to use Babylon as a tool to send his righteous judgment on them. And it's about to happen. But you think about that, why is he using Babylon? Babylon was evil. Well, if you go on and look, Babylon would get theirs eventually. But the fact is, the time was up for that kingdom. That message had been sent. They had warning after warning. It's too late. So this is where we come into chapter 29 of our text. Jeremiah is writing a letter from Jerusalem. The people of Judah, everyone has been exiled. The, the Jeru- or Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Only the poorest of the poor are left in Jerusalem. Everyone else was carried into exile into Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing this letter to these people who wouldn't listen, who are now facing the consequences of their actions. And that exile has taken place. Now, in verses four through seven, Jeremiah sends this message. Basically, get used to being here. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat of the the vegetables from them. He says, marry and have children. Now listen to this, allow your children to marry. They're gonna be there for a while. He says, multiply. But then he says, seek the welfare of the city and pray for it. Sounds like he's calling them back, doesn't it? It sounds like he's calling them back. Even in this horrible time, in this horrible situation that they're in, going to be exiled for 70 years, he's saying, Basically, turn back to me and be a light in that darkness. Pray for its welfare. And when they do that, positive things will happen. But really, the harsh reality of what they are experiencing at this time when we read this is that they're going to be here for a very, very long time. That's pretty small. Now, what it says here is beware of false prophets. In verses eight through nine, he talks about these false prophets that are telling them that they're not gonna be there for 70 years. They're gonna be there for a while. And he says, these prophets are lying to you. Don't believe them. They're not sent from God. But then we get this glimmer of hope in verses 10 through, 10, 10 through 13 or 14. We get this glimmer of hope. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 10, he says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Hope. In the midst of a horrible time, there's hope. And that verse right in the middle 
is what we like to pull out and we like to say, this is all about me. It's not. It's not all about me. So when we look at that in context, we have a whole different view of what this verse means. So as we look at this, I want to talk for just a minute about what this verse doesn't tell us. What this verse doesn't say to us. First of all, it never says that it directly applies to the individual Christian today. It doesn't. It doesn't directly apply to me. It doesn't directly apply to you. And that's how the the religious world likes to look at that. That it's a message to me. That if I trust in God, he's going to provide stability for me. He's going to prosper me physically. And I'm going to be secure in this life. And we take that to a string, an extreme. But think about what we just talked about. As a nation, Israel has gone against God's will over and over. Now they're suffering the consequences of those actions. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is gone. And now for 70 years, they're going to have to live in this foreign land. And most of them won't ever make it back. These people are anxious. They're sorrowful. And they're overwhelmed. And verse 11 is just a small part of a bigger message that gives hope to the nation of Israel as a whole. You think about what it's saying. Even the people who are going to read this letter would not see this come into fruition. 70 years is a lifetime. It's a long time. That's why he said, have children. Allow your children to get married. Because most of the people who are going to read this letter when Jeremiah sent it will never make it home. It's not about the individual at all. And it's not about us individually. Secondly, this verse never tells us that this verse is all about me. Me as an individual living in 2022. That's the year, right? 2022. It's not about that. But we tend to think of ourselves, we think pretty highly of ourselves, don't we? We look at verses like this one and verses like Philippians 4.13, and we take them as God is speaking to me. He wrote this message for me. It's about my life. It's about my future job. It's about my family. Instead of looking at the context and seeing who it was truly written to and finding the application that way. Because when we isolate it, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel good. It gives us comfort, even though that's not what it's saying at all. And I think that comes back to our pride. Instead of looking at ourselves as a small part of the whole, we like to look at ourselves as the biggest part of the whole. You know, the church at Rome had a problem with this. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then he goes and he talks about the individual, the importance of the individual or the, the, the small importance of the individual, but the importance of the whole. That's what's important. It, the whole is important, not us as individuals. But we have this thought process that we are so important. 
And that's how we make our decisions. And that's how we, we decide to do this or that. We base it on what we desire or what we want or what we think. Instead of looking to God. Instead of considering the whole. And again, that's still a problem we have. We look at what we want, what we desire, and we forget about what God has asked us to do, what God has commanded us to do, what would be best for the church. And having a thought process like that makes it easy for us to take verses like Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 and say, that's all about me. And that kind of leads us to our next point, that God will fulfill all of our worldly desires. Sometimes we look at verses like Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, and we look at God as almost like this genie whose sole purpose is to make sure that my wants and my desires are taken care of. That I'll have everything that I want and that he's gonna shield me from all sorrow and all trouble. But you think about what scripture says overall, scripture does not say that at all. Now God says that he will take care of what we need, but I think as Americans, we have a hard time understanding the difference in wants and needs, don't we? So we take it as God's going to give me what I want. It's never promised. We take it as God's going to, to keep me from sorrow and pain. When we look at Scripture and it actually says as a Christian, we're going to suffer, we're going to have hard times, we need to trust in God. And we kind of start to see the damage that can come from a view, from viewing verses in this manner. It's so hard When you see a verse pulled out of context, not to think, oh, it's all about me. God's going to give me what I want. God's going to give. And you think going back to those graduation invitations or you have those kids who are about to go in a different point in life. Things are about to change. That's comfort. But really, God is not concerned with our fancy lifestyle. It's not God's concern. God doesn't care if I scrub toilets or if I'm the president of the United States, what matters to God is whether I'm spiritually healthy, whether I'm willing to do his will. And that's what he wants for us. And we see that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. As Peter's talking, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's not slow, what is it? But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's not about God not being able to do it. or not. Be. It's about him giving us opportunity. That's what it's about. Because he wants us to repent. He wants us to be saved. And Jeremiah 29 11 is not about what I'm going to gain physically. And we have to stop looking at it that way. So we've talked a little bit about what this verse doesn't tell us, I want to talk a little bit about what we can learn from this verse. And you might be saying, well, you just said it doesn't apply to me. But we can learn and we can gain encouragement. We see that in Romans 15 and 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I'm going to tell you, if you look at the context of Jeremiah 29 and 11 and you understand what it's actually leading us to, it's going to give us far more hope than we could ever have in the physical as we like to take it out of context. 
It's such a powerful verse. The first thing I want us to understand and I want us to learn from this verse is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. We look in Jeremiah 29 and verse 10, their consequence was gonna be that they were going to be exiled for 70 years. Again, that's a long time. It was too late to change the course physically. God wasn't, he wasn't going to do that. They were going to be there for 70 years and it didn't matter what the false prophets came and said, whether they were gonna, it was gonna be less than 70 years. God was going to keep them there for 70 years. And that's what was gonna happen. You see, God was willing to restore Israel, but that didn't didn't mean that he was gonna take the physical consequence out of their life. They were going to have to endure that. That's why Jeremiah's message said, you're you're gonna have to learn to live here. That was their consequence for their disobedience. Their actions led to consequences that were severe. They had to learn to live with them. And we must realize that our sin will have consequence also. Physically, our sin will have consequences in this world that we're gonna have to deal with. But the thing about consequences, the thing about discipline, is if we use it right, we can learn from it. We can gain from it. When it comes to our sin, again, those consequences can be severe and they can be long-lasting. As a parent, I learned pretty quickly that I had to be consistent with discipline. You look at that sweet face back there, Quinn. She, she's got you all fooled. Yeah, when she was about three years old, and I, I'm going to give you a message, you young parents that, don't, that have kids under the age of two, or maybe you're planning on having kids one day. They call them terrible twos, but that's nothing on the three-nagers. Nothing. Quinn, Quinn was crazy, crazy. She would scream and yell. I'd have to go check the windows after her fits because I was afraid she cracked them. I mean, it was horrible. And it would happen over and over and over. And, we'd say, and, and here's another thing about Quinn. She did not, spankings, eh, whatever. They, they'd help for a minute. But when you took away her toys, man, that was it. Took away her toys and put her in the corner, it was over. Now, she got pretty good. And and another lesson, kids learn to be pretty manipulative pretty early. So she learned pretty quick if she she put that bottom lip and said, I'm sorry, everything would, we would say, oh, she she feels bad. Let's, Let's give her back her toy. And it wasn't too long before we had another fit. Well, one day I got fed up and I said, seven days. I will take away every single toy you have for seven days. And here's another message. Only do what you can do as a parent. (laughs) Because guess what happens when you take away toys from a three-year-old for seven days? Guess who has to entertain them? Well, obviously she didn't believe me. And I, I remember it to this day. She was sitting on the bed. I was kneeled down in front of her. We're looking eye to eye and she screams. I had it, and I thought, how am I going to take every toy away from her? So she had this toy box. It didn't have a lock on it. So I went and got this 100-foot extension cord, and I wrapped it, and I wrapped it, and I wrapped it. I tied it, and then I wrapped it some more, and I wrapped it some more. 
Tied it. it was like Fort Knox. She was not getting a toy, and she didn't for seven days. But I'm going to tell you, she never had a fit like that again. She learned from that consequence. It was hard for her to endure. It was hard for me to endure. But she learned from the consequence. And our sin in this life will bring consequences that God is not going to take away just because we poke out that bottom lip. I know someone personally who made the decision to drive while intoxicated. They got in a wreck. They lived, but the other person didn't. And I can tell you they regret that every single day. It's a consequence that, of their sin that they have to live with. And it's changed who they are. But you still have to endure those consequences. We think of all the broken homes out there. We think of of the loss of friends, the loss of family because of our decisions. That's what sin does. It's fun for a little bit, but it doesn't last, especially when those consequences come around. But it's not only physical consequences, it's also the spiritual consequences. Isaiah facing a similar situation to Jeremiah around that same time, speaking to the children of Israel. The children of Israel thought that God had lost some of his power but that, that's, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord is not hand, or not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When we sin, a spiritual consequence from that is a separation from God. He won't hear us. And if we let that go on too long, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So we've got to be careful and understand that our sin, before we make that bad decision, is going to have some consequence. And we need to be careful with that sin. But that also leads to the next point, that we must repent. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 12, he says, Then you will call upon me, And come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You see, it wasn't about the 70 years. It's not what it was about. It was about their willingness to repent and turn back to God. That's what it was all about. You see, they will hear him, he will hear them when they seek him. When they make that decision to repent and turn their lives around. You see, God hearing them was contingent on their willingness to repent and change and get back to God. And the same goes for us today. When we think about the idea that we've never obeyed the gospel, part of that process is repentance. Part of that process is turning to God. We hear the word, we believe it, we repent, change who we are, Then we confess, and then we're baptized. It's part of the process. Maybe we have already obeyed the gospel, and we turn our back on God, and we walk away from him. We have to repent. We have to turn back to God. And that's exactly what James says in James chapter 4, verse 8. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. When will he draw near to us? When we make the decision to draw near to him. When we make the decision to repent. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Change your ways. 
children of Israel were learning a hard lesson in exile. And the only way to fix that would be to turn back to God. But I think the best lesson that we can learn from this verse is that God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 14, he says that they would be found by, that they would be found by him, that, that he would restore them, that he would gather them, that he would bring them out of exile. And 70 years later, guess what happened? He fulfilled his promise. He did what he said he was going to do. A remnant was returned back because that was the promise he made. And what we have to understand is that those promises still apply to us today. We still benefit from those promises. In Psalm 145 and 13, he says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. God is faithful to the promises he makes to us. In Genesis, you think back to Genesis in the time of Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed. We also read it, as we read in 2 Samuel 7 and 16, that a kingdom would be established forever through David and his lineage. And Jeremiah gives us this same message. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he who shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There was a promise there. A promise made. And that promise was Jesus Christ. God had a plan to restore Israel. And that's exactly what he did. And because that happened, Jesus was brought into the world. Through that promise that through David, an everlasting kingdom would be established, Jesus was brought into the world. And luckily that plan did not just include the children of Israel. You see, he had this plan before time. First Peter 1 verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. For us. And that's a plan we still that's a promise that we can still take to the bank today. That he made a way for us. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no, no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Listen to this. Heirs according to promise promise to us. And herein lies the beauty of Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. It's not about a personal job search. It's not about what I want or I think I need. It's not about our worldly future or God shielding us from every harm in this life. This verse represents something so much deeper and so much more profound than our physical lives here on this earth. This represents the promise of Jesus Christ that they would be delivered out of that exile and through the lineage of David, Jesus Christ would be born. He would live a perfect life. He would die on the cross. He would shed his blood for us and he would be raised. And he would defeat death. 
so that blood could cleanse us. And you look at Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 in a whole new light when you understand that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Future and hope is Jesus Christ. And you can have access to that this morning. If you've never obeyed the gospel, I encourage you to do that this morning. You can be added to the kingdom this morning. You can be a part of something so much bigger than yourself. Or maybe you're here and you need the prayers of the church. We can be your support system. We can pray for you. We can pray with you if you come to the front as we stand and sing.